I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, I'm joined by Classical WETA's Nicole Lacroix, and we're exploring one of the most iconic works in classical music, the Symphony Fantastique by Berlioz. There is so much to discover, like how his obsession with an Irish actor led to the symphony's inspiration, how he created some of the haunting musical imagery, and the detailed story that evolves from start to finish over five movements like a roller coaster. Nicole, can you think of a first symphony by any other composer that matches in scale and significance as the Symphony Fantastique by Berlioz? It is well-named as a fantastique symphony. It is the first true romantic symphony. It's the first time that somebody's actually telling their own story, their own passionate romantic story in music. It's confessional. You can almost see certain Halloween-ish effects. You know, it would be great as uh, movie music, as a score. And what I really like about it is the fact that it's it's there. You really don't have to scratch your head. You don't need a music degree to understand what's going on and to appreciate it. And you know what? I really like the way Bernstein, I think, tells it best. He says, Berlioz tells it like it is. Now there was an honest man. You take a trip, you wind up screaming at your own funeral. <laughs> I mean, it is tremendous. And I think 150, 60, whatever years later, we have, it's hard to see in hindsight really the significance of it because it's just so normal. It's so common today. But we have to remember, this was composed and premiered in 1830. This is just six years after Beethoven's Symphony No. 9, which already broke the mold and was a huge deal. He wrote this only a few years after Beethoven's death, yet it sounds like something from a century later. Not only that, he was just 26 years old, fresh out of the Paris Conservatory. He just won a great prize, right? The Prix de Rome, a big prize for the arts in France. So this symphony, I mean, it truly came out of left field. And it's our first fully fledged programmatic symphony that tells a story from beginning to end. So Nicole, how does Berlioz in his 20s even come up with this? He goes to see a performance by an English company of Shakespeare's Hamlet, and he falls in love with Shakespeare. Now, he doesn't speak a word of English. He's just read the translation. But the person who brings it to life, the Shakespeare to life for him, is an Irish actress by the name of Harriet Smithson. Then he goes and sees the same English troupe performing Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. And then he just, he falls. He just falls passionately in love with Shakespeare, who becomes sort of his artistic god, and with Harriet Smithson, who is basically Shakespeare's priestess. Mm. And he goes wandering around, and he can't sleep, and and he puts his feelings in music and... Meanwhile, he's reading Goethe's Faust, and he's inspired by that as well. And he writes the Symphonie Fantastique. So he's inspired by a lot of this literature, but also from these performances, right, of Harriet Smithson, where he just falls kind of head over heels for her, because I read that she was this just brilliant actor who could 
bring out extreme emotions in the plays. And I think that's kind of maybe where Berlioz was getting a lot of his cues from. I mean, we know he loves kind of the same thing in music, and he's seeing this woman do it. He can't understand what she's saying. She doesn't speak French. She doesn't speak English. But he just falls hopelessly in love with her. And we'll mention more about the premiere of the symphony and more about Harriet Smithson as we go on because she is kind of written into this this symphony. So looking at Symphony Fantastique, five movements, we'll jump into the first one. And I'm going to read here kind of extensively the program notes that Berlioz wrote. But first, Nicole, what is the title here? Because we have them in French and in English. Symphony Fantastique, Episode de la Vie d'un Artiste. So Symphony Fantastique, an episode of an artist. And the first movement? Rêverie, passion, daydreams, and passions. And here's what Berlioz wrote. The author imagines that a young musician, afflicted by the sickness of spirit, which a famous writer has called the vagueness of passions, sees for the first time a woman who unites all the charms of the ideal person his imagination was dreaming of and falls desperately in love with her. By a strange anomaly, the beloved image never presents itself to the artist's mind without being associated with a musical idea in which he recognizes a certain quality of passion, but endowed with the nobility and shyness which he credits to the object of his love. This melodic image and its model keep haunting him ceaselessly like a double idée fixe. This explains the constant recurrence in all the movements of the symphony of the melody which launches the first allegro. The transitions from the state of dreamy melancholy, interrupted by occasional upsurges of aimless joy to delirious passion, with its outbursts of fury and jealousy, its returns of tenderness, its tears, its religious consolations, all this forms the subject of the first movement. Nicole, I can only imagine in 1830, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, what what am I about to, what is happening here? This is too much. <laughs> Apparently, the jealousy came from a rumor that Harriet was having an affair with the manager of her company. Mm. So even though he had never actually met her in person, he was totally jealous. And we'll see how that manifests itself later in the in the symphony. And she is this beloved image, which is also a melodic image that he called an idée fixe. We can see this as later on something called a leitmotif that was developed by Wagner. So it's a short melody that refers to something like a person, a place, a scene. Here it's referring to Harriet Smithson. And we'll play that in a moment. But first, what happens before we even get to this idée fixe, Nicole, is an introduction. And we learned in the last two seasons of this podcast that symphonies in general have introductions, something nice and slow to introduce us to the music, set the scene, get everyone quiet. Sometimes they're like 30 seconds, maybe a minute or two. Beethoven started moving away from them. And so this revolutionary Berlioz, what does he do? He makes the introduction over five minutes long and one third of the entire first movement. It is dominating in the um, in the symphony. In the opening, it's almost as if the story starts immediately, and it's like Berlioz is saying, suddenly, I was awake. Yeah, it's a, the idée fixe, or the character, the main character, doesn't show up until about six minutes in. Yes. So the music is kind of flowing along. It's very... I don't want to say forlorn. It's just, it's kind of what was described by Berlioz. It's 
an imagination of dreaming and falling in love, the vagueness of passions. And then we finally get to where you just mentioned this ide fix, the very, very all-important melody that is in every single movement. So we need to remember that melody, keep it in our back pocket because it's going to be coming back time and time again. Nicole, something you said before, which is so important, is that Berlioz just, he gives us everything we need. We don't need something to interpret all of this for us in the music. When he writes that there's aimless joy, delirious passion, and outbursts, we hear that in the music. His program notes are very, very appropriately descriptive. When you hear that idée fixe for the first time, you're struck by the yearning quality of it, Mm -hmm. the way it just keeps going up and up and up and getting more passionate and more uh, despairing. And the dynamic ranges, you know, he goes from, in this movement, from double forte to double piano. Later on, he'll be going to quadruple piano, and he'll uh, he'll have instructions that say, the orchestra has to play as softly as possible, which when you see this whole, this huge 130 voice orchestra, you you got to wonder how they do that. It is very characteristic in his music where you are playing something very soft and then suddenly really the loudest dynamic you'll probably play in the orchestra. He takes things to extremes in both dynamics and also range, as you mentioned, getting higher and higher. He builds the tension, I think, in in ways that Tchaikovsky would kind of pick up on on as well. These rising and falling chromatic scales. And it's just, you'll be hearing this idea, and there's all these other thoughts around it, shouting, jumping in and out, just like what he said, describing all of those things, and then saying all this forms the subject of the first movement. Now, Nicole... We have to remember, it's 1830, right? We've just heard, you know, Beethoven, Schubert as well. This is completely different. I can only imagine what it would be like to hear this passage for the first time. just keeps going and going. There's these melodies, things are going on that don't seem to match up at at all. And then the timpani comes pounding in. It sounds like the timpani is almost three dynamics too loud. It's it's just explosive. I love the way he uses the timpani throughout Mm -hmm. the piece. And then with the end of the first movement, it just kind of ends nice and soft and kind of sweet, doesn't it? He says religiosamente, religiously, mm-hmm. with the whole orchestra as soft as possible. So already in the first movement, I imagine some confused people in the audience. And let's think about the premiere for a second. This premiered in December of 1830, just days before he would be turning 27. And I read that reviews of the first performance, which took place at the Paris Conservatory, were mixed. Usually that's kind of not a great thing, but I think with the symphony as completely out of left field as this, just being a mixed review seems like a good thing. 
Yes, indeed. And nobody was throwing tomatoes. No tomatoes. And, oh, and Berlioz was not throwing anything. No. <laughs> because he had had a previous concert at the uh, conservatoire where he he didn't like the way they interpreted it. And so he threw his music stand and his score at the performers. Well, that's something you cannot do anymore. You will end up straight up in jail. <laughs> that brings us to the second movement. What is this one called? It is called a ball. A ball. And what did Berlioz write here for the program notes? The artist finds himself in the most diverse situations in life, in the tumult of a festive party, in the peaceful contemplation of the beautiful sights of nature. Yet everywhere, whether in town or in the countryside, the beloved image keeps haunting him and throws his spirit into confusion. What I find is interesting, once they were married, he writes in a letter, that this was the favorite part of the Symphony of Harriet. And she would often ask him to sing it for her. Oh, that's sweet. Sing the theme for her. (laughs) And this one, I mean, well, first, this one also has two harps in it. It's the shortest one, I think, of all of the movements. It's kind of the least programmatic, which is to say it's still very programmatic, but for Berlioz, it's a little more even. It sounds like you're in a Viennese dance hall, doesn't it? It does at first, but then the waltz starts to kind of gallop. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, it ends kind of in a turbulent way. So if you tried to waltz this at home, you'd probably fall flat on your face. It, to me, it's very, you know, period film, Kiera Knightley, you know, at the ball. They're, they're dancing around, and you're kind of inside the head of the character. You're not viewing this from a, a, a distance, kind of like a first-person thing. And it's kind of delirious joy and passion. And then all of a sudden, we have this idée fixe that theme coming back in again that we heard in the first movement that represents um, Harriet Smithson. And also, as you've said, it is haunting him. It's this sudden, not joyful moment in in the waltz. And then it just takes off and it kind of gets faster and faster where at the end you would collapse. It almost sounds to me like he's outside, you know, this brilliant ballroom looking in the window at her dancing. And all the jealousy and love and fury is just boiling up. That's the way it sounds to me. And you mentioned a moment ago something very, very interesting. They got married, didn't they? (laughs) They did. He's obsessive. He's stalking her. They don't speak a common language together. And, I mean, he's, he's doing some very not cool things. And then after a performance a couple years later of this symphony, they ended up getting married. That is the wildest thing to me. Yes. He invites her to hear a concert of the Symphonie Fantastique and the sequel, which is called Lelio. And she doesn't realize who he is because this guy has been stalking her for years and she's afraid of this guy, but she doesn't realize that he's the, the composer. And then she realizes that this is all about her. And then... He asks if he can be introduced to her, and they court for a year. Both families are completely against the union. He writes to a friend that because Harriet was hesitating about marrying him, he swallowed a lethal dose of opium in front of her. And he says to her, 
unless you promise to marry me, I won't take the antidote. So she screams. He goes home. He's sick for three days. He takes the antidote, and they get married. Oh, my gosh. And they they did stay married for, I think, basically a decade before they were divorced. They weren't actually divorced. They were. That's right. Yeah. They were separated. Mm -hmm. And very sad because, you know, here we're sort of laughing at his success. But when she dies, for four years, she's paralyzed. She can't talk. She can't move. And But he takes care of her. And when she dies, he remembers how much she meant to him artistically and personally, that this was the major love of his life, the major passionate event in his life. And Liszt wrote to him when she died, Berlioz, she inspired you. You loved her. You celebrated her in your music. Her work was accomplished. And that brings us to the third movement. And in French, what is the title of this one? Uh, Scène au champ, or Scene in the Country. Berlioz writes, One evening in the countryside, he hears two shepherds in the distance, and he being the, the artist here, two shepherds in the distance dialoguing with their ronde de vache. And that is um, ronde de vache, just a simple melody that you'd hear played on a, a horn by a, a shepherd. He goes on, this pastoral duet, the setting, the gentle rustling of the trees in the wind, some causes for hope that he has recently conceived, all conspire to restore to his heart an unaccustomed feeling of calm and to give his thoughts a happier coloring. He broods on his loneliness and hopes that soon he will no longer be on his own. But what if she betrayed him? This mingled hope and fear, these ideas of happiness disturbed by dark premonitions form the subject of the adagio. At the end, one of the shepherds resumes his rendezvous. The other one no longer answers. Distant sound of thunder, solitude, and silence. Can you say Beethoven's pastoral symphony? Yes. But what's different, of course, there's this opening duet that starts the movement, and it's played by English horn on stage, which is a kind of a larger, longer-looking oboe, a little bit deeper in sound. And then off stage is an oboe. So when you're at the concert, you'll often see between the second and third movement, uh, oboe player get up and walk off the stage. They're not leaving forever. They're just going either right outside the door or sometimes in the back of the concert hall. And they have this call and response duet together. It's beautiful. I'm not sure of an offstage oboe instance before this, but it's representing, right, not just two shepherds, but also maybe uh, the artist Berlioz and then Smithson in the distance. Exactly. And he had been raised in the country. So there's this very personal feeling of, ah, I'm home in nature. I'm away from Paris. And to me, I, I kind of see mountains, you know, a shepherd on one mountain and, and another shepherd on the other. I, I think that duet is just beautiful. It's Apparently, it took him a long time to write this. By a long time, he meant more than three weeks. But it was one of the difficult pieces for him. It really does sound like you're just also in the rolling hills in the French countryside driving along when you're hearing some of this music. It just sounds beautifully pleasant. But there's always something sinister, as you said in the, the program notes, these dark premonitions. She has betrayed him. When we get to, again, of course, the Ide Fixe, that melody that's returned again and again, it returns, but there's interruptions. 
And I agree with you. He, I mean, he would have been a great film score composer because when you hear this, you see this person having these, this thought of you know this idée fixe, this this woman, and then all of a sudden, uh, an instance, a thought of an intrusive thought of betrayal or, or fear. And then, of course, that wonderful thunder that he brings up. Yes, that brings us to the end, where the Ronde Vache, as he says, it returns, but. The other one, the oboe that was in the concert hall or off stage, is no longer answering. That happens a few times, and it's supposed to feel a little unsettling. Yes, because not only is it thunder, and you can you can just imagine it in the mountains, and the other oboe is probably in his hut taking shelter, but you know what's coming next. It's the marche au supplice, and this is kind of a premonition. Yes, a, a premonition to the march to the scaffold. And we can think about the significance of the symphony before we move on to that march. Because this truly came out of left field. Program music, music with a story to it, was still relatively new. I mean, you can think of Vivaldi's Four Seasons, the century before, those violin concertos which have accompanying sonnets. Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony, as you mentioned, is one that paints these different scenes. But Berlioz is taking us on a journey, complete story from beginning to end. There's twists, there's turns, there's extensive program notes. There was really nothing like this. And it's an interior journey, whereas Vivaldi's thunder and even Beethoven's thunder is something happening in nature. Here, as we were saying, it's a premonition of something, of, a, of an emotional state. We're experiencing this kind of character first person, and Berlioz is putting in our minds these musical ideas that bring the fear, that bring the paranoia, that bring the... Also, I think in a way that we don't hear much before... This time, the delirious passion, because we hear passion and joy in music, of course, think Beethoven's Nine, but there's also the kind of passion and joy where it's a little frightening, right, or, or kind of unsettling where it's delirious, and Berlioz is doing that. Yeah, delirious. I mean, in real life, apparently, he would he would do things like this. He would go out in the fields and spend all night there under the rain and the snow and, you know, worrying about his passion. It was probably aided by a hefty dose of opium. And that's where we're getting to because he actually did use opium in some of his writing of this symphony. Now, if you think about this as a roller coaster, we're now 35, 30, over 30 minutes into the symphony now. We're now just reaching the top of the roller coaster. We are about to now experience the ride that is the uh, the symphony. So remind us again, what is the name in French of this fourth movement? Marche au supplice or March to the Scaffold. And what does Berlioz tell us? What does he want us to know? Convinced that his love is spurned, the artist poisons himself with opium. The dose of narcotic, while too weak to cause his death, plunges him into a heavy sleep accompanied by the strangest of visions. 
He dreams that he has killed his beloved, that he is condemned, led to the scaffold, and is witnessing his own execution. The procession advances to the sound of a march that is sometimes somber and wild and sometimes brilliant and solemn, in which a dull sound of heavy footsteps follows without transition the loudest outbursts. At the end of the march, the first four bars of the idée fixe reappear like a final thought of love interrupted by the fatal blow. And that sounds terrifying just reading it. (laughs) Now, when you go to a concert to see this performed, you'll notice that it's a large orchestra, but you'll notice also that a lot of people on stage haven't really done anything yet. A lot of the back row and the brass have been sitting, and it's that's another difficulty of playing in an orchestra. Sometimes you sit for 30, 40 minutes, and now you have to play as if you were just warmed up a minute ago. So something you'll see, here's a new musical term we can learn, and that is tacit. It literally just means silence, nothing. You just sit there. So in your part, you see for this symphony, movement one, tacit. Movement two, tacit, and so forth until you get to the, until you get to the fourth movement. This one opens with timpani and horns. The horns are sometimes stopped, meaning they have their whole hand and palm in the bell to block the air so that it's a very compact, crunchy sound. You often really just hear it with mutes. Those are cylindrical or kind of cone-like pieces of equipment you put inside the bell that change the characteristics of it. Now, Nicole, here is how we get into the main theme of this movement. I love that timpani. That would have been shocking, too, I think, in uh, 1830. Shocking, but, you know, because it is so uh, gruesome, Mm -hmm. I think that the young people in the audience probably enjoyed it a great deal because it was so romantic. And I think we can hear something kind of contrasting here, right? That theme that we just played is starting at the top, and then it goes down, 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 down in pitch, right? It's descending. But a lot of the Ide Fix theme that we've been hearing in every movement, that goes up and up and up and up. There's a lot of contrasting motion that sometimes he brings at the same time as well. I hear this, you know, he was born in 1803, and the revolution, the French Revolution, uh, was not a whole lot before then. And so he was probably raised with ghoulish stories about Madame Guillotine. Okay, yeah, that's right. And so he's probably reliving that from a, a very close perspective. And not only that, but apparently uh, when they led you to execution, there would be a military band marching alongside you. Oh, my gosh. And then there would be, of course, it was a public execution, so a bunch of people all excited and, and drunk in the audience cheering their heads off as this poor man with his plodding footsteps is going to the scaffold. And I think you can hear his heartbeat also, you know, with those plodding footsteps just before he thinks of of uh, Harriet or the Idée Fixe for the last time. And what makes it kind of unsettling is that it's this march to an execution that, as you're describing, it, it sounds kind of 
fun at times. It's, as he wrote before, somber. It's wild. It's brilliant. It's solemn. It's all of these different things combined together. He brings the whole march in with the the bassoons, a lot of virtuosic bassoon writing in the symphony, I think, that leads us into this march that sounds, now that you say that, it really does kind of sound like French military band-esque as they're, you know, here we go, going to the guillotine. I don't mean to laugh, but it's, it's perfectly horrible. Also, outbursts, shouts from the crowd. As we mentioned, Berlioz is using dynamics to the extreme, and this is a movement where you are going along, and then all of a sudden there's an outburst. And it brings us all into this final, very, very musically descriptive moment, right, where you said the idée fixe reappears like a final thought of love, and then it's interrupted by a fatal blow. And what's also so great about the symphony is that recordings can be wildly different from each other. At the end, after that blow from the the guillotine or whatever, that pizzicato in the strings, that's his head bouncing down the steps, right? That is, that is ghoulish. And then it's this triumphant snare drum roll and the brass coming in to this kind of a heroic executioner, isn't it? That brings us to the fifth and final movement. And what is this one, Nicole? This one is Songe d'une nuit de sabbat, or Dream of a Witch's Sabbath. Berlioz writes for the program notes, He sees himself at a witch's Sabbath, in the midst of a hideous gathering of shades, sorcerers, and monsters of every kind who have come together for his funeral— Strange sounds, groans, outbursts of laughter, distant shouts which seem to be answered by more shouts. The beloved melody appears once more, but has now lost its noble and shy character. It is now no more than a vulgar dance tune, trivial and grotesque. It is she who is coming to the Sabbath. Roar of delight at her arrival. She joins the diabolical orgy. The funeral knell tolls. Burlesque parody of the diazire, the dance of the witches. The Dance of the Witches combined with the Diazire. Again, this one sounds even a little more terrifying, doesn't it? And here you see the influence of Goethe's Faust, where the, the witch is Sabbath. Think of uh, the opera, Gounod's Faust, and there's this whole uh, witch is Sabbath. And uh, Berlioz also wrote The Damnation of Faust. And if I had two words to describe this movement, it would just be absolute mayhem. And starting with the opening, it is very unsettling. That is oh, that kind of kind of creaky witches, and then the shouts. I mean, it already kind of gets your hair standing on end. 
He has such a colorful way with the orchestra. As I said before, you don't need to know anything about music. You can just sit there, close your eyes, and the visions appear. What's kind of funny is I think he may have not realized how right you are in saying that because in the beginning with this symphony, he said these program notes must be printed. The audience must have them, period. But as time went on a few years later, he started saying, well, if it's just this symphony presented by itself with no extra stuff that I may have written, you you may not need to have the program notes printed. I mean, again, he was only 26 years old. I mean, he, he had a lot to learn from the next years. And he was kind of an outsider, visionary yes, composer. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, hadn't, you know, been a, a prodigy or anything like that. In fact, I think he was a medical student, which explains <laughs> his easy access to opium, I guess. Him being a medical student is terrifying. I mean, if he was my doctor, he'd probably show up and say, okay, today we're going to rearrange your guts. And just, <laughs> and he would probably do it. And you live for a while. You know, what I like about him, and you see it in all his writings, his memoirs and so forth, is his sense of humor. And it's a real mischievous one. When we get to the witch's dance, it's a fugue. I don't know if you want to explain that. Well, a fugue being that there's this principal idea and it's being brought back in and repeated by other sections. You can kind of think of it like as row, row, row your boat, where people, one group starts and the next and the next, and it can, it can kind of just keep going. Exactly. So in order to compete for the great prize, the Prix de Rome at the conservatory, which he had to try, he didn't make it until his fourth time, you had to write a fugue. And so he had to learn how to do that, and it's kind of hard. So he puts a fugue in here as a way of thumbing his nose at the conservatory authorities. He brings the Ide Fix back in, right? And he does this with an E-flat clarinet. This is kind of a smaller clarinet than the one you would see, um, you know, in middle school band or something like that. Let's listen to this for just a moment. This is one of my favorite things to, one, not just hear, but also sit in the orchestra and hear someone play this. This is one of my favorite moments in music. Why is that? It's because when you're playing with a really good orchestra and it's a really good clarinetist, they can take this to an extreme of just, it's diabolical, it is grotesque, it is, dis- when they make it as disgusting and terrifying as possible, for me, that is pure joy. I just love it. And if you were to contrast that with what you hear at the beginning, mm-hmm. when he first introduces the Ide Fix, the yes. contrast is amazing. Yes. From the pure, yearning young lady to this vicious witch. Yeah. There's another instrument that we get introduced to in the orchestra, and that is these bells. Uh, sometimes they're maybe just chimes or bells on stage, oftentimes bells off stage. And those are maybe what he writes before, those tolling of the bells. (laughs) 
And of course, in Paris, France, their church bells are something they hear all the time and they get to know the significance of what kind of tune is being played, maybe for mass or maybe it is for a funeral. And this introduces Nicole Wright, a melody that would be very familiar to everyone, the Dia Zire, something they would know from Requiems, too. Exactly. And he does this with two tubas on stage. And we've not mentioned yet that the tuba really wasn't quite invented at this time. What Berlioz wrote for were ophiclides. And ophiclide is basically, if you just think of a large saxophone, like a baritone sax, a berry sax, and you stuck a tuba mouthpiece into it, that's kind of what it looks like. And it's extremely difficult to play. Nine times out of 10, it sounds terrible. There's a handful of people, I think, alive that can play it and sound incredible. But generally, I mean, this is something for the museums, this Ophiclad. But when he brings it in this Diazire with the tuba, which is the follow-up of the Ophiclad, it is so, so haunting. And that is something everyone would have recognized right away. This sounds very dark. It's terrifying. You are witnessing your own funeral. But then the mood changes, doesn't it? It goes from this terror to uh, a celebration almost. (laughs) Right. There's the dance. It's like a wake. (laughs) There you go. Nicole, we have the witch's dance, we have the diazire. Does he combine the two? I love the way he does that. He's he he's really showing his teachers at the conservatory, "Hey guys, I can really do this. I can I can do a fugue and I can even add uh, this diazire to it and make it all sound good." And it's so easy to forget. This is 1830. Beethoven's Ode to Joy was the finale of a big symphony just a few years before. Now we have this to where it is one, a completely different soundscape, but also it's extremely difficult to play. Berlioz, I think, he actually wrote in the score at places or also included in, in, a, in, a, in a publication how to rehearse the orchestra to be able to play some of this stuff. There are still moments where big professional orchestras, it falls apart for uh, one or two measures for about two seconds. Maybe not everyone notices it, but it's almost like, well, it's it's kind of a given that's going to happen sometimes. (laughs) 
Yeah, if you look at the complete score, it's a complete mess. <laughs> you know, going the, the dynamic differences, you know, what you've got, you've got one uh, measure that says uh, fortissimo and then another one is like a quadruple piano and then all of a sudden there's a sforzando and then there's play as softly as you can, all within, you know, half a page. And we have the advantage today, 170, 80 years later, that these excerpts, these things that are in the symphony that are so hard, they're something that we're playing now in high school for our conservatory auditions because it's just there. This was a tremendous feat to put together back in the day. And there's another technique that he brings in which is extremely unsettling. Well, first, maybe let's listen to what he writes. It sounds like you've opened a door and there's just a person standing there covered in cockroaches that that <laughs> cicadas. Oh, or you know, that's 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 very timely. That's going to happen. So we're going to all be having that feeling. Uh, to me, it sounds like bones, like skeletons dancing. Mm. And what he's doing is he it's he's writing in the score Colenio Batuto with the wood of the bow. So the string players, they're turning their bows sideways to not use the, the hairs against the strings, but the wooden part. And the rhythm, they're, they're kind of all playing the rhythm on their own, which makes it kind of this cacophony. And it's that c- c- kind of clicking sound against the strings that creates that very, very unsettling effect. I'm sure it was, it was used before this, but not anywhere near like he's doing right here. It's been quite a journey, hasn't it? Almost an hour. A fantastic one. A fantastic, yes. A name that works better in French, I think. (laughs) Yeah, because it has uh, more of a fantasy in the meaning. We've got the strange sounds, the groans, the outbursts, the funeral bells, the the dies irae, the idée fixe now presented in some grotesque fashion. The fugue, the dance of the witches combined with the dies irae, this colonia batuto. I mean, we've got a whole years worth of music education in one movement and it brings it to an end which is chaotic it is also grotesque but also brilliant and uplifting at the same time Yes, and I think when you finish listening, and if you've in the 1830 audience, you think, I've really been entertained. I had a fantastic time. You got your money's worth for this concert. Yeah. You paid five bucks. You got $100 of entertainment. I love it. It is really one of the most fun pieces to perform and play. I mean, it's always guaranteed practically to sell out a concert hall because... We can't get enough. There's always something new to learn in the music, something new to when you're playing it, new when you're hearing it, different conductors, different orchestras. There's so many different ways of playing this because he added in all these individual techniques and ideas that give room for interpretation centuries later. 
It's interesting that as basically, as we were saying, kind of an unschooled, he did go to the conservatory, but a visionary outsider kind of composer. And the fact that he's bringing in so many extra musical notions, the program and so forth, it really is a supremely musical piece. Yes. Because of the orchestral color and, as you say, the way he uses the melodies. He doesn't do little snippets of motifs like Beethoven does. He expands melodies and and gives us color. But that is extremely musical, purely musical. And he does all of this being, as you said, an outsider because we need to remember he was an outsider and he also didn't really play an instrument. He could barely play the piano. I think he could only like pick out a few chords, uh, maybe flute or violin guitar. or guitar. Guitar, that was it. But in, not in any professional way at all. I mean, it was very, very, very rudimentary. And that is that is very, very unusual for a composer. I mean, composers, they all, they've, they have mastered an instrument, piano, violin, whatever. So he wasn't wedded to one sound. He right. could hear the orchestra. He had a different vantage point. That's right. So after this, I mean, he ushers in the romantic period of programmatic music, doesn't he? I mean, Liszt, Wagner, usually it's like decades of transformation, small changes here and there. Berlioz has ripped out the rug from under everyone. And all of his pieces are different. Mm -hmm. It's not like he wrote a second symphony and it was, you know, a follow-up to this. Everything that he writes is different. Romeo and Juliet and, you know, uh, Damnation of Faust and all the other pieces. The, The Trojans, the big opera that he wrote. Oh, yeah. Everything's different. That one, I think, has four tubas. The Trojan. (laughs) And... His significance lasted not just with the whole programmatic thing and also the symphony, but he also wrote a treatise on orchestration that has inf- that influences composers today, how to combine instruments together in ways that sound new. Well, Nicole, I think we've talked a lot about Symphony Fantastic. We'll have some video and more information on the show notes page, but do you have anything else for us? Well, having just read the two volumes of his memoirs, there is so much more to this man that we could talk about. But I think uh, we'll bring this particular chapter to a close. Okay. I'll put on the show notes page two um, information about those memoirs. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown. For more information about this episode, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. And if you have any episode ideas, send me an email at classicalbreakdown at weta.org. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from Classical WETA. ¶¶